This is the Equip Podcast from Cornerstone Church of Ames, a podcast designed to help you live a gospel-fueled and faithful life wherever Jesus has called you. Welcome again to the Equip Podcast from Cornerstone Church. My name is Mark Vance. Good to be with you all again. And I'm actually going to be recording a series of podcasts here over the next couple of weeks all around the topics of sexuality, gender, identity. Um, These are topics that come up again and again uh, for me as a pastor, people asking questions. But in particular, a lot of times the Equip podcast just rises out of normal life and pastoral ministry for me. And so over the course of the next few weeks, I've been studying to and preparing to do a talk on um, just sex and fidelity inside of our SALT company context. Uh, what does it look like to be faithful in the modern world to live a life of purity, to pursue um, honoring God with our body? But then I'm also doing, at the same time, a talk inside of our youth context at Cornerstone on gender identity. And what does it mean to be made in God's image? And who is it that we are? And how do we define those things? And so what I want to do is actually record a few podcasts that rise up out of the study that I've been doing and can kind of go beyond what I'll be able to address in those uh, contexts. I think there's so much here where Christians just need faithful, thoughtful, biblical, theological reflection, because as we look out at the culture around us, we see a culture that seems to, it almost feels like sometimes have lost its mind on some of these issues of when it comes to gender, when it comes to sexuality. I mean, even recently I was trying to study up for this to understand what are all the terminologies related to gender out there, and I went to the um, LGBTQIA plus website uh, put out by University of California, Davis, which lists a whole bunch of the definitions. And I started trying to read them all. Guys, there were 24 pages worth of definition just on sexual identity, orientation, and trying to describe all of the new terminologies. It just gets overwhelming sometimes, right? So what I'm going to try to do is help you understand a bit of the cultural moment going on and introduce some of it. And I'm doing all of this underneath an umbrella here of a big idea that I've been having over the last several weeks. And it's, it's this big idea. I think actually in this moment that Satan may have vastly overplayed his hand in the Western world. Now, here's what I mean. And you're going to find this kind of thread of hope throughout all of these podcasts. Um, the devil, he's not logical. We're talking about a being in Satan that looked at the throne of Almighty God and thought, you know, I can probably sit on that throne, which means he's not actually vastly intelligent in the perceptive sense. At times, he's so full of himself, so full of pride that he will overplay his hand. He's winning, and he'll just keep going and keep going and keep going. And I actually think that is what is beginning to happen in the Western world around gender identity, sexual orientation, marriage, family, all of these topics. What I'm finding is more and more so people in the modern world are left hopeless and helpless because as they look around, they go, I'm being told all of this by society. I'm being told that, you know, marriage doesn't matter. And, you know, who really cares if you're doing things a traditional way? But then I look and I just go, it's not working. And more and more, I am seeing in the next generation of college students, a incredible openness to biblical truth against the backdrop of a world gone mad. 
But I also have to say on this, the world has gone mad in many, many ways. And so you're going to have to understand how to walk through that faithfully as a Christian. So here's the next three kind of podcasts we're going to do. This one here, I'm going to do a brief overview, kind of review of an incredible book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution by Louise Perry. This, by the way, is not a book written from a Christian perspective, but from a secular feminist perspective, arguing against the sexual revolution. I will review that book today. And then the next two podcasts, what I'm going to try to do is actually talk about gender identity at a bit bit more basic level. What exactly do do we mean when we use all of the letters LGBTQIA+, what is trans? How do you define that? And what's the core theological issue there that Christians should be rooting in? And then I'll try to get really practical and do a podcast on how do we relate to people that we love? As parents, as friends, as brothers, as sisters, what does it look like for us to be honest about what God calls us to, but yet also enter into a relationship with people who may struggle with their sexual or gender identity? Okay, so that's where we're headed. Today, I'm going to spend the next 10-15 minutes just doing a brief overview of this incredible book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, A New Guide to Sex in the 21st Century by Louise Perry. Now, I want to say very, very clearly at the outset, this is not a book written by a Christian. This is not a a tame book. Okay, there will be a lot inside of this book that you're going to find vile and disgusting as a Christian. Do not expect this book to not be crude. This book is not a Christian book. This is not something you should read to your children at night unless you are some sort of weirdo. Don't do that, okay? This book is a provocative analysis from a liberal secular feminist about kind of reflecting on, now as a modern person, the fruit of the sexual revolution that began in the 1960s, you know, with the the advent of the pill and with more freedom sexually. And she's looking back at that now from the standpoint of a modern secular liberal writing in 2022 and asking the question, has all of this turned out well for women? And this book, I've been reading this, uh, prepping for a talk that I'm going to be doing at Salt Company, really needs to be taken seriously, both on a macro social level, but as a Christian reading this book, oftentimes you felt like you were reading something that clearly someone who had grown up in Judeo-Christianity must... must have had that background to arrive at these conclusions, because what she's doing is basically using secular logic to arrive at biblical conclusions. It's a reminder at the outset, books like this, there's all sorts of books like this, written by secular authors that arrive at biblical conclusions. Why? Well, because God made the world, and it works according to his design. You know, if Romans 1 says the heavens declare the glory of God, like creation reveals the majesty of God, Romans 2 says there's something of the morality and nature and virtue of God imprinted on the human heart. So it should not surprise us from time to time to see popping up in secular culture things that reflect on that kind of image of God quality in us as people. Well, this book is one of those examples. I want to just... 
just review the book, kind of give you an overview of the thought outline here, because I think it's potent and powerful. Here's her table of contents, the basic chapter lines. Number one, sex must be taken seriously. That is a chapter that is against kind of the casual hookup culture in the broader world. Second chapter, men and women are different. That's an argument that biological genders are inherent, real, and undeniable. And that there are profound differences in the way that men and women look at the world and look at sexual relationship. Third, some desires are bad. This is an argument that there is morality that goes behind us and that actually we should not just let people say whatever you want to choose is good. You know, the modern language of forbidden, to forbid is forbidden. She's like, that's nuts. Fourth, that loveless sex is not empowering. That again, we're going here against a casual sort of normalcy of a hookup culture and trying to argue that actually people want something deeper. Fifth chapter, um, consent is not enough. And this chapter might be one of the most potent chapters I've ever read against the pornography industry. Unbelievable. Violence is not love against sexual violence and against perverse forms of sexual expression. Seventh chapter, people are not products. That's against the sex work industry, as some people would call it now, just simply known as prostitution, the sinful um, habit of people buying and selling sex. And then her final chapter, perhaps the most shocking of all of them, marriage is good. Okay, so I'm going to review those just kind of one by one. First chapter, sex is to be taken seriously. Here's what she's writing, and I'm just going to read some quotes here. Again, this is from The Case Against the Sexual Revolution by Louise Perry. I just want to give some quotes. She begins the book with a heartbreaking comparison and contrast between Hugh Hefner and Marilyn Monroe. Marilyn Monroe, the kind of symbol of sexual liberation as men looked at her as a centerfold in men's magazines, entertainment for men. Marilyn Monroe, though, who as you look at her life, you find a person increasingly used by men, not lifted up by the sexual revolution, but degraded by it. And what Louise Perry argues is, I'm going to quote here, she says, the story of the sexual revolution isn't the story of women freed from the burdens of chastity and motherhood, although somewhat it is that. It is also a story of the triumph of the playboy, of a figure too often forgiven and forgotten despite his central role. She argues that, that we, we often present the sexual revolution as liberating women, but it also liberated men like Hugh Hefner. And she writes this, as if it, the goal was to liberate their libidos while pretending that they were liberating women. It didn't liberate women. It liberated men who used women. That the sexual revolution didn't offer freedom, but it freed some people, but at an unbelievably expensive cost to human dignity. And that's leading to deep, deep disenchantment. It's an incredible chapter written from a secular person because she's making the basic argument. She's looking up kind of at the landscape post-sexual revolution and saying, this has not worked. She's reflecting back on decades and saying, we now have the data, you know, we made this huge social change, and now we're looking to see how's it going for us. 
And she's her argument is, it's not going well. I'm going to pause here, kind of draw back, and as a Christian, reflect. This is one of the difficulties that we're facing right now in the modern world. We may not understand it entirely, but we are in the midst of a profound social experiment all throughout the Western world. You know, not just, we talk about it with, for instance, the advent of the iPhone. We, are, we have a profound generational experiment that is ongoing in real time with all of our children, and it is asking this question, what happens to a kid when they grow up their entire life with an iPhone in their pocket? with access to massive amounts of both good and bad at the touch of their finger. What happens to people like that? What happens to a generation of humans that are socially disconnected interpersonally, but massively, almost godlikely connected socially through the internet? What happens to people there? You know what our answer is? We don't know, because we're doing a real-time experiment on our kids right now. Okay. That's, that's what happens when you have these massive social constructs that get torn down inside of, you know, this, the last 50 to 100 years. The sexual revolution in the 60s, the moral revolutions that follow that, the divorce and remarriage revolution as, as laws around divorce and remarriage in the Western world are rewritten. We now have a gender identity revolution that we're going through, the internet revolution. All of these things are happening in a really condensed way. The question is, how's it going? Well, Louise Perry, is the premise of her book is looking back on the sexual revolution and basically saying, this was a mistake. That's her reflection decades in. Now, as Christians, I don't say that to make you afraid of the future. I do say that to say, not all change is good. And we should actually ask the question, does this, this change that we're going through heighten our ability to love God and to love others? There, as Christians, we know there is a transcendent, that is an unchanging transcendent morality. It's grounded in the nature of God, and it's revealed in the Scripture by God. And so what we're trying to do as we look at any social change is ask the question, does this enhance the people that we're called to be in light of who God describes us as? And Louise Perry is just kind of giving us a real-time analysis from a secular person's perspective, saying a lot of these social changes aren't good. A lot of what's happening right now in 2023, we won't know the cost of for another two, three decades. Okay, that's a bit scary, but, well, it's true. Second chapter, she writes, men and women are different. Now, she's going to make an argument off of evolutionary biology that the simple reality is there are undeniable biological differences between men and women, that it shows up in the way that they think about sexual function, it shows up in the way that they live, and that those things cannot just be explained away as social constructs. Men are real, real, women are real, and their differences are real. Chapter 3, some desires are bad. Now, this is, I'm going to give a moral scenario here that Jonathan Haidt, who's an American social psychologist, I've referenced him in the book, The Coddling of the American Mind, wrote about, 
he, he often gives this sort of scenario to test our moral intuitions, and he'll ask research participants to listen to a story and then explain whether they think that such a thing is right or wrong. And he'll give a scenario. He gives this one. Imagine a man that goes into a supermarket and buys for himself a whole dead chicken. Okay, whole chicken. He takes the chicken home. He proceeds to have a sexual relationship with the dead chicken and then eat it. No one else ever finds out. No one else ever knows about it. Here's the question Jonathan Haidt asks. And I realize I've described a situation that you are hearing and finding morally revolting, right? But Haidt's question is not, do you find the scenario disgusting? His question he asks people in the modern world is, did that man do anything wrong? Right? Like, he didn't, he didn't hurt anyone else. Did he break any particular laws? Is there anything wrong with that? Now, as Christians, you're going to go, absolutely yes. Why? Because he is misusing the sexual function that God has given him. It's used outside of its created orders. But you know what? That scenario there, most modern people cannot figure out a way to say that that's wrong, even though they intuitively know it is wrong. And that is actually part of what Penny Perry is going to argue here. Louise Perry, it's really interesting too. She's basically going to argue in this chapter, all of us know certain things are wrong by our intuitions. And even if we don't think those things are um, totally real or, you know, we need to trust our intuitions a bit. That's profoundly, that chapter was so interesting to me because She's basically saying moral intuitions need to be listened to. Now, I'm saying as a Christian, that's what Romans 2 says, because God has imprinted his law on your heart at some level. I expect to find that people have moral intuitions. But it is really interesting to watch a purely secular person try to justify why those things are useful. Really interesting chapter. Wow. Okay, chapter 4. She argues, loveless sex is not empowering. What's really interesting here, she takes modern stereotypes like the show Sex in the City that were out there, and she, she looks at it and says, is this really what we're after? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a, uh, just, there's so much of this chapter I want to read. It, it, this is one of the most profoundly interesting chapters in a book I have read in a really long time. Because her whole premise is that the modern world is showing people a picture. Sex in the city, this is the ultimate empowerment. Look at how fulfilled and happy these people are. And she's saying, yeah, but really, it's all fake. That's not really what's happening. Because what we want is not just sexual freedom, but we want deep companionship. We want roots. We want people who are connected emotionally and personally and mentally. It is unbelievably profound. Her next chapter, chapter five, this is the last one, I'll I'll skip to the end after this, is titled Consent is Not Enough. And I would say to you, if you want, if you needed, I'll just say it this way, if you needed a potent, powerful, and horrible explanation of why the pornography industry is from the pit of hell, this chapter would give it to you. Again, not written from the perspective of saying you shouldn't watch pornography because it's wrong biblically, 
She's saying you should not watch pornography because it is profoundly, perversely, horribly damaging to women. And just the simple, simply reading this chapter, I could barely um, keep from crying. Sometimes, friends, in order to argue against pornography, one of the things I'll say to groups of people is it's not just that it's wrong, it's, it's that it's damaging to image bearers. You have to learn not just to hate the shame you feel, but to hate pornography itself for the degrading and defiling that it's doing to people made in God's image. This chapter, in one of the most powerful ways I've ever read, did that for me. It just reminded me again of why we oppose all of this. And then then I'll just jump to the final chapter. Final chapter, marriage is good. Fascinating argument for marriage. Fascinating argument for marriage. She talks about the changes that happened socially, but I'm just going to read her end advice at the end of this chapter. If I have one piece of advice to offer, you've probably guessed what it will be. Here it is. You should get married. And then do your best to stay married, particularly if you have children, and particularly those children are still young. And if you do find yourself in the position of being a single mother, you need to wait until your children are older before you ever bring a stepfather into the home. These directives may be harder to follow now than they used to be because we no longer live in a culture that incentivizes perseverance in marriage. But it is still possible for individuals to go against the grain and insist on doing the harder, less fashionable thing. She literally just said, go get married and stay married, because that's the best thing for people, and her argument in this chapter is potent. Okay. The Case Against the Sexual Revolution by Louise Perry. Why did I take the time on the podcast to read through that? One is just because I, w- I found it fascinating. The, this whole book, was it was shocking to me to read a person from a purely secular perspective basically repeat things I've been teaching at Salt Company over and over and over again for the last decade. But I think also I'm reading it to make a point here. I said at the beginning, I'm convinced that what's happening in the world is we're seeing that the devil has overplayed his hand, that actually some of the exaggerations of the sexual revolution, some of the moral changes that we're seeing in the world are so utterly ludicrous, so demeaning and dehumanizing to people, so against the grain of the natural way God created the world to work, that what we're going to begin to see is a pushback against that. You're seeing it in books like The Case Against the Sexual Revolution by Louise Perry. You're seeing it in the rise of neo-Stoicism. You know, guys like Jordan Peterson and Jocko Willink yelling at young men to do hard things, and they're listening. Why? Because they know that the world around them is crazy. So I record this podcast to say, as part of this series looking at gender, identity, the sexual revolution, all of those questions that can so discourage Christians— I also want to say I think there's a profoundly important social moment happening here where actually the beauty of biblical Christianity, both taught from the Scripture and lived out in a compelling way in rich marriages with rich families, just displaying the goodness of God to the world, that I actually think that might be one of the most profound gospel opportunities the church has. I know the world around us looks crazy in some of these ways. 
to have a website we look up that talks about gender that has 24 pages of definitions can overwhelm a person. I get it and I feel it too. But I also want to say there's an opportunity here. And maybe one of the most profound, countercultural, and powerful things that you're going to do to be a witness to Jesus in the next years is going to be to simply live faithfully as a man, faithfully as a woman, faithfully as a husband, to have actually a vibrant marriage that shows the world the beauty of God's good design. Because in a world of crisis, of cultural transition, actually the stability and beauty of biblical Christianity is going to be a powerful thing. So take hope, church. Take hope. Uh, God's going to use your faithfulness in these areas. And so I'm hopeful over the next couple podcasts, we can serve you, lay some good foundations, and help you to just continue to faithfully live in all the places that God has called you.